All right, welcome back to Behind the Knife. Uh, we are continuing today with Thoracic. Uh, this is the last episode in our uh, Absite review series, minus the the quick reviews just prior to the Absite. Um, this currently is not in our book, um, but we plan to have that in the next edition. Okay, Jason, take it away. All right, so Thoracic Absite. So as always, we start with some high yield anatomy. So Megana, so let's talk about left versus right. Uh, um, uh, uh, lungs. There's different lobes. Uh, how do you how do you keep that stuff straight? Uh, so on the right side, the heart is not in the way. So there's three lobes versus on the left side, there's two anatomic lobes. Perfect. Um, and uh, keep going. Let's talk about lymph node stations now. So a lot of people get confused by the different lymph node stations of the, um, the thoracic cavity. So in general, uh, is there an easy way to remember the lymph node stations? Yeah, so I don't even remember the actual what each one, what area it is. But um, the biggest hint is that if it's a single digit number, it's a mediastinal lymph node. If it's a double digit lymph node or a double digit number, it's a hilar lymph node. Yeah, so stations one through nine are in, are in the mediastinum. As you get out more peripherally, that's your 11 through 14. For the absite, I can't. I don't think they're going to get too in the weeds about different lymph node stations, but that's just a good kind of general way of keeping them straight. Okay, so John, let's talk about the. Uh, there's uh, often they'll ask you yeah, where the thoracic duct runs. What's a way of remembering the the track and where it, it, you'll find the thoracic duct? So the good way from Megan and I taught me this recently is uh, between two goose. So you have the thoracic duct runs between the azagous vein and the esophagus goose. That's uh, the best way to kind of remember it. Right. So right between the between your yeah the duct runs between the goose the two gooses or geese or gooses. Uh, so you have the as a goose vein and the esophagus. That's where the thoracic duct runs. Um, what's the course of the Megan? What's the course of the thoracic duct? It, it crosses from from right to left at a certain level, um, and that's a, that's a high yield thing that's sometimes asked. How do you remember that? Yeah, so it starts at the cisterna chile, which is around L2, and then it crosses at T5 from the right to the left side until it empties into the junction of the left internal jugular and subclavian veins. Right, so it crosses from uh, right to left at T5. Uh, and what's its final destination of the, uh, or what's the final destination of the uh, azagus? Or azagus? The superior vena cava. Yep, so the azagus drains into the SVC. Uh, John, uh, thoracic innervation. Uh, talk to me about the phrenic nerve and talk to me about the vagus nerve. Uh, one runs anterior to the hilum and one runs posterior. How do you remember which is which? Uh, I guess I think of it the best way is to think of an alphabetical order. Uh, so A, anterior, is before P, posterior, and phrenic, uh, P, is before vagus V. So phrenic nerve is anterior to the hilum and vagus nerve runs posterior to the hilum. Yep, A before P, P before V. So anterior is the phrenic, posterior to the hilum is the vagus. Uh, what, how about John, what about the anatomic boundaries of the mediastinum? Yeah, this one you can kind of visualize in your mind, but uh, you think of the sternum anteriorly, you have the vertebrae posteriorly, you have the pleura on either side laterally and the thoracic uh, inlet superiorly. And then finally, down below everything is always the diaphragm anteriorly. Great. Okay, Megan. So uh, a lot of times you'll see questions about different types of uh, pneumocytes, type one versus type two. Um, so what are the functions, or what are the different pneumocytes, and what are their functions? So there's two types. Type one is the type that 
uh, performs gas exchange. And then type two are the pneumocytes that make surfactant, um, which the primary component is phosphatidylcholine. Yeah, that's the one they like to ask is which one makes uh, surfactant. So type two makes surfactant. Um, uh, how about the, uh, st still on anatomy, what are the pores of con? So those are pores in the alveoli that enable a direct air exchange. And Jason, on the same note, what is a space of dis? Uh, so a space of dis, it's, it's kind of an anatomic analog, but this one is in the liver. So that's the space where the hepatocytes uh, interact directly with the sinusoids. So a little bit of a trick question that's not in the uh, uh, mediastinum or not, not in the thoracic cavity, uh, but it is an anatomic uh, analog to the pores of con. Okay, with that, we'll move away from our anatomy into a little bit of physiology and, and, um, and pathology. So, uh, John, uh, we've talked a lot about pulmonary function tests, specifically with regard to a preoperative optimization and preoperative workup. Um, so, what is the uh, preoperative workup? What do you need for a patient you're considering for a uh, lobectomy? So for the absolutes, uh, in this kind of in general, the, the two tests that you really want to think of is the first one is the projected force expiratory volume, FED1. Uh, so you want that greater than 0.8 or 80%. If that's close and they ask maybe what's the next thing you would do, uh, the next step would be doing a VQ scan that would show the contribution of the disease lung to see actually how much is getting, um, uh, is getting uh, how much ventilation you're actually getting or expiratory volume you're getting. Um, FEV1 is the best predictor of postoperative uh, complications. Um, and another one that you should know for the abscite, so FEV1 is the first one. The next one is diffusion lung capacity of the lung, or DCO, DLCO. And you want that um, less than 10 millimeters a minute, uh, a millimeter, uh, which is about 40% predicted. Yep, exactly. So uh, that's, those are the numbers they're going to kind of ask you is that, that predicted force expiratory volume um, greater than 0.8 or 80%. Uh, again, uh, a more accurate way of, of, of kind of determining what that, that, that uh, post-operative uh, volume is going to be is going to be that VQ scan. So people around the border will need that VQ scan. As you said, FEV1 is the best predictor um, of uh, the risk for a post-operative complication. Uh, but also important is the diffusion cap, diffusion capacity of the lung, um, and that you want to be 40%. So, so those are the numbers you're going to see. Um, obviously, it's more complicated than that, but for the upside, if you know that, uh, you'll be in pretty good shape. Uh, Megana, uh, another thing that is uh, frequently show, shows up is lights criteria. So what what is the what do we use lights criteria for, and what are the numbers we need to know? So lights criteria is the way that you distinguish between uh, pleural fluid being an exudate versus a transudate. Uh, they usually give you that question where someone's already had a, um, they have a pleural effusion, they tap it, and then they give you a few numbers and you have to figure out um, what exactly the etiology is. So lights criteria um, are, are threefold. So one is that the pleural to serum protein ratio is greater than 0.5. Number two is that the plural to serum LDH ratio is greater than 0.6. And the last one is that the plural LDH is greater than two-thirds of the normal serum LDH. And if those are all true, then your plural fluid is an exudate. Fantastic. So again, yeah, that protein ratio 0.5, the LDH ratio 0.6, or uh, uh, greater than two-thirds of the normal serum LDH. 
Um, so let's talk a little bit more. Let's, let's go into uh, kind of the sequela of these uh, uh, transudative or exudative uh, effusions. So what are causes of pleural effusion that, and uh, what can potentially lead to uh, a patient having an empyema? All right, so the three things you need to remember for the absite. Um, so increased permeability of the pleura and the capillaries, increased hydrostatic pressure, or hypoalbuminemia. For increased permeability of the pleura and capillaries, that's most likely to be caused by sepsis, malignancy, or pancreatitis. Increased hydrostatic pressure is usually from heart failure or chronic kidney disease. And hypoalbuminemia is either from cirrhosis, uh, nephrotic syndrome, or malnutrition. Great. So uh, it makes sense if you think about it. Things that increase the uh, permeability and things that increase the hydrostatic pressure. Uh, many of those disease processes can result in a uh, pleural effusion. Um, and then, of course, if that's, you know, becomes exudative or it gets secondarily infected, that could uh, result in empyema that makes uh, your patient very, very sick. Uh, John, what kind of imaging uh, would you uh, would, would you get, and um, uh, if, you, if you suspect this, and, and what are some of those typical radiographic findings? Yeah, so think of the things you normally get if you're working up somebody with a lung disease. So first one, chest X-ray, do the first step. You'll see blunting in the costophrenic angle. Um, a visible effusion will be present if there's greater than 300 cc's of fluid there. Uh, and this is usually for the patient's in an upright position. If they're in a supine position, you're not going to necessarily see this. And obviously, you'll see some fluid in the fissures of the lung as well. On ultrasound, uh, you'll see some fluid in the pleural space and, uh, and loss of inspiratory sliding. Uh, once again, it depends on the position of the patient. So the patient sitting upright, you're more likely going to see this in the cases of the lung. And then finally, you know, uh, kind of the ultimate look at everything is the CT chest. Um, You'll have a simple fusion be homogenous. Um, most are posterior and inferior uh, versus an empyema will be loculated uh, heterogeneous collection. Great. And uh, Megan, so let's 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 talk, let's break this down a little bit more as far as what you're going to do about these when you find it. So let's say you have what looks like a simple pleural effusion. What's the what, what's the typical treatment algorithm for that? So simple pleural fusion, um, you can treat with conservative management, and uh, once you know the etiology, treat the underlying cause. Um, however, if the pleural effusion doesn't resolve, becomes symptomatic, or it's um, developing, then you can uh, place a drain. Yeah, so you can you can perform a pleurodesis if, if the um, you know if the if the patient is symptomatic from the pleural effusion. Different people are going to have different thresholds for that, um, so we won't get too much into the weeds of that. But uh, treating the underlying cause um, is is the the key there, and draining if symptomatic. Okay, well, how about an empyema though? What what do we do with those? So for an empyema, I actually just saw a score question on this. You know, the first step is um, likely going to be placing a drain um, or a chest tube, but um, typically empyemas won't resolve without decortication. Exactly. So, um, so uh, yes, you can at times place a tube, place a drain, um, and, and potentially even you know perform some lysis. Um, but it's going to vary a little bit depending on practice. But the the gold standard treatment would be a, uh, a decortication. Um, along the same lines, let's say we're in a trauma situation and we have a patient who had a hemothorax and uh, on their chest x-ray, they have chest tubes placed, but on the chest x-ray, you see that they have a retained hemothorax. Uh, John, how are you going to, where are we headed with that? So yeah, on the outside, you'd be looking at escalation of care. So if the chest tube's in and maybe not be draining properly, you could consider placing another chest tube uh, into the hemothorax. If it has already consolidated, 
your best bet's going to be doing a VATS and a washout. VATS or thorough economy for washout. Um, and, uh, you know, aside from blood, aside from simple fluid, uh, there's other things that can collect in the checks. One of the things we'll see every once in a while is a chylothorax. Uh, so, Megan, what's a chylothorax and how do you diagnose it? A chylothorax typically occurs after an injury to the thoracic duct. Um, and so it's usually diagnosed by seeing milky white fluid coming out of the chest tube. Um, and then you basically sample that fluid and you'll see that there's a uh, high amount of triglycerides over 110 milligrams per deciliter with a lymphocytic predominance. Um, and then you can do some other things like staining it with Sudan red, which will stain positive for fat. Yep, those are those are the the keys there. So high triglyceride content and, and stains uh, positive for Sudan red uh, would be indicative of a chylothorax. Uh, you mentioned one etiology, which is which is trauma. Um, it's it's seen pretty it's seen uh, a common cause of it is uh, traumatic in nature. But what's another cause? So half of these are due to trauma or iatrogenic injury, um, and then the other half are due to malignancy, which is typically a lymphoma. Right, lymphoma. So be thinking, like I said, you can see them in trauma scenarios, but you can also see them uh, with, uh, with malignancy and specifically lymphoma. Um, and uh, when do we typically see these things presenting? Um, let's, let's say uh, you have an iatrogenic injury. So you're operating somewhere near the thoracic duct, and then uh, uh, when are you going to see this present postoperatively? So this usually happens once you start your patients on oral intake. Exactly. Uh, so, um, John, uh, how do you manage? How do you manage these? So the first step you knew is conservative management with low-fat, medium-chain fatty acid diet. So no long-chain fatty acids because they're absorbed into the kind of, uh, uh, <clears throat> absorbed into the uh, lymphatic system can make your output worse. Uh, bowel rest and then TPN if it's high volume. Um, if you have a persistent leak, uh, a chest tube is probably likely necessary, especially if it's a large volume of the chylo, uh, chylothorax, uh, and then plus or minus octria to try to reduce that amount of uh, lymphatic drainage. Yeah, and we, we see that one show up every once in a while, specifically the difference, what kinds of fatty acids can you introduce into their diet and what kinds you want to avoid um, in patients that have these chylothorax. So, they, so the, the answer they're looking for there is, is the medium chain fatty acids uh, kind of bypass the system. So those are the ones, if you are going to have them on oral diet, those are the things you want. And you want to avoid those long chain fatty acids. Um, uh, what if that fails? Or what if uh, we're dealing in a trauma scenario? Um, uh, John, how, uh, how would you manage that one? Uh, so if they're pushing you to look for a, a surgical option for this, so uh, usually the answer is going to be a ligation of thoracic duct, which is low in the right mediastinum the right chest. Um, you can also consider talcloridesis um, uh, and possible chemo XRT for malignancy causes. Perfect. Okay, so Megan, I'm moving on. Uh, so let, let's say you have a scenario where you have uh, an 18-year-old uh, basketball player who reports that he occasionally uses marijuana and he was watching TV and he suddenly felt uh, chest pain with inspiration. Uh, what's uh, near the top of your differential for that? 
So this is one of those where I'm thinking a, a tall young man, he likely has a spontaneous pneumothorax due to some apical subpleural blebs. Perfect. Yeah. So this is your young, tall, uh, you know, guy who has a sudden onset of, of uh, chest pain and, and shortness of breath. And you should be thinking that they're heading you towards a spontaneous normal pneumothorax. Um, so let's talk about primary versus secondary pneumothorax. What's the difference between primary and a secondary pneumothorax? Uh, so primary pneumothorax is spontaneous, um, just like in our scenario. A secondary pneumothorax, on the other hand, is due to an underlying medical condition. Um, this can be COPD, which is the most common, um, or asthma, cystic fibrosis, infection, malignancy, <clears throat> et cetera. Perfect. Uh, so, uh, John, still same patient, 18-year-old, uh, spontaneous pneumothorax, uh, and he got a chest x-ray in the emergency room that, that shows a pneumothorax. Uh, you send your intern down, you're in the OR, you send your intern down to go evaluate the patient, and the, the intern calls up frantically that he looks anxious, uh, he's working to breathe, his heart rate's uh, 120, so he's tachycardic, and his blood pressure's starting to drop. Uh, he's got prominent neck veins. Uh, so what's what's happening now? What's what's developing? Yeah, this is pretty obviously a tension pneumothorax. I mean, anytime you get a patient with a pneumothorax that's worsening in clinical appearance, that you should be thinking about a tension pneumothorax. The first thing you would do for this would be uh, a needle decompression. Um, well, that's debatable, but a needle decompression is a good option. That's oh, I hate these questions on the website, but. You would insert a needle uh, with an angiocath into the second intercostal space at 90 grain with the chest, uh, just over a third rib. You could also do an axillary decompression uh, just above the fourth rib. Yeah, so I agree with you. I hate these questions. These are what's like, what's the best next step? And a lot of times it's not something we would all, any of us would actually do. So, you know, we're surgeons. We would just either do a, a finger thoracostomy or, or put a chest tube in in, in real life. But... For test, you know, practice your test taking skills. You got to think to the lowest common denominator. So, uh, initial, the best next step for attention pneumothorax would be decompression with a needle decompression. Um, uh, so, you, you got to put on your uh, your test taking mode when you answer some of these questions, when you approach some of these questions. Okay, so uh, let's go back and just take a step back. And, and we're not dealing with tension physiology. Let's just for your, your non-tension pneumothorax. Um, Megan, how, how do you, what's the management algorithm for a spontaneous uh, pneumothorax in a, without tension physiology? So uh, knowing the size matters. Um, so if a patient is clinically stable and it's a small pneumothorax, you can just observe it. Um, it should reabsorb over time. For another, uh, for a larger pneumothorax that's more than three centimeters, but the patient is still clinically stable, you can use a pigtail catheter or a chest tube um, to evacuate the pneumothorax. This is one of those scenarios where a pigtail catheter is appropriate. And then um, if the patient's unstable um, or the pneumothorax is very large, then you need to place the chest tube. Right. Yeah. So uh, clinically stable small pneumothoraxes, yes, you, you can observe those. those need, you, know, you need to monitor those patients closely. Um, and there's no reason to put in a large bore, you know, or a large diameter chest tube for a small, uh, simple pneumothorax. So pigtail catheters um, are, are, are uh, pretty commonly used for, for this indication. Um, and of course, if the patient's unstable, then you're just going to you're just going to slam in a chest tube, of course. Um, how about uh, choosing, uh, we'll stick with you, Megan, how about choosing when to take these patients to the operating room? 
So uh, you would consider taking a patient to the operating room if they have a persistent air leak um, for more than four days. Um, and at that point, you would want to do um, a, a pleurodesis. Um, you could also operate on a patient after their second recurrence of a spontaneous or primary pneumothorax. And typically, these are those patients that have those apical blebs. And so you want to remove any blebs that you see um, in order to prevent further recurrence. And then high-risk professions, and this is shown up on the ab site, are scuba divers and pilots um, because of their high risk of um, developing the pneumothorax during in their profession. You should, after the first occurrence, go ahead and take them to the operating room. Exactly. It's going to vary a little bit based on practice. I'm sure everybody out there has encountered different variation in practice with this. But you know, for the ab site, persistent air leak, vascular pleurisis. Um, if they don't have a high risk pop, uh, high risk uh, profession. Um, uh, you can uh, manage these uh, with a, a chest tube and they seal off just a chest tube and uh, not an operation. But after they recur, uh, most of the patients are going to end up going for a, a VATS blebectomy. Um, so bonus question, John, let's say you're doing the VATS and you actually don't for a spontaneous pneumothorax and you don't see uh, any blebs. What do you do then? Uh, a lot of people will just go ahead and resect a portion of the apex anyway because there's using blebs there. Right, exactly. So even if you don't see blebs, um, a majority, and I think that would be the right, the right answer on the test is you do um, uh, an apical wedge resection. Um, uh, Megan, how do you how do you do? Uh, we've talked about pleurodesis a little bit. How do you how do you perform a pleurodesis? So there's multiple ways that you can do a pleurodesis. Um, mechanically, you can use a scratch pad, um, use your bovi, and um, basically the point is to uh, cause an inflammatory reaction that uh, causes scarring and, and abuts the visceral and parietal pleura. Uh, the other way to do this is chemically, you can add uh, doxycycline, bleomycin, or talc. Um, go old school with that. Um, or you can just do a pleurectomy and remove the parietal pleura, which again will cause the visceral pleura to a butt to the chest wall. Perfect. Okay, let's move on. Let's let's move on to the mediastinum. Let's talk uh, some about some different mediastinal diseases. Uh, so, uh, uh, John, you have a six-year-old alcoholic who went on to, went on a drinking binge and then had a massive forceful emesis. He comes to the emergency room. He's got chest pain. He's febrile. He's tachycardic. Um, his uh, chest X-ray is uh, pretty unremarkable. What's the? What are you worried about? What's the next step? Yeah, for absolutely and for oral boards, you got to be thinking about esophageal perforation here. Uh, so your next step would be a gastrographin swallow. Gastro, sorry, sorry, me. Gastrographin swallow. Um, you also need to see the extent of the mediastinitis if there's a perforation there. So a CT neck, chest with PO and IV contrast is also a reasonable. If you don't see anything in your gastrographin swallow and you're you're still kind of concerned in a thin barium swallow, we'll be an next step after that. Okay, so um, you, you mentioned there uh, mediastinitis. Um, uh, why is that? Why, why is that so important? Well, these are really severe infections um, due to the, a perforation of the esophagus or the trachea, and it can lead to a, a, essentially a necrotizing infection in either direction in the mediastinum down towards the abdomen up through the neck. Um, it also can be caused uh, from oral pharyngeal infections. Uh, I'm actually blanking on the name of that right now. Um, Ludwig's angina. Yeah, Ludwig's angina, um, which yeah. does happen a lot. Yeah, yeah, and then you know, chronic uh, people can have chronic mediastinitis, which 
uh, generally manifests as, as fibrosis. But yeah, this acute mediastinitis can be a very, very, very serious thing. And uh, patients can get uh, very sick very quickly. Um, how do you manage an acute mediastinal infection if you're concerned? Uh, so source control, obviously, since we're surgeons. Uh, antibiotics, resuscitation. Um, you may have to continue uh, go forward with sternal debridement uh, if it's from a post-op sternotomy. Uh, you need to place cervical drains if it's a cervical infection, vast to drain a mediastinum. Uh, it's, it's kind of really tailored to where the, the infection's coming from. Yeah, we won't get too into the weeds about the management of the, we, we presented this as, you know, management of a, or as a esophageal perforation. We won't get too much in the weeds of that right now. Really, more what we want to focus on is that treatment of mediastinitis. We'll, we'll cover the, uh, the the treatment and management of the uh, esophageal perforation in our esophageal chapter. But uh, yeah, definitely source control, uh, broad spectrum antibiotics. Um, you have to be pretty aggressive with these because, uh, again, these patients can, can deteriorate pretty rapidly. Um, sticking with the mediastinum, let's uh, go over some uh, some common mediastinal tumors that uh, frequently show up on uh, board scenarios. So, um, uh, Megana, so most common cause of uh, mediastinal adenopathy? Lymphoma. Great. Okay. So, yeah, lymphoma is the, the most common cause of mediastinal ad, um, uh, adenopathy. Um, how about the most common overall uh, mediastinal tumor, both in adults and in general, in children. So those are the neurogenic tumors, and these usually occur in the posterior mediastinum. Right. So overall, all comers, adults, children, uh, most common mediastinal tumor is that neurogenic tumor in the posterior mediastinum. Um, now, how about uh, the most common site of a mediastinal tumor? Megan. So the most common site is actually anterior, and those are the terrible T's. If you remember, thymoma, teratoma, uh, ectopic thyroid, or terrible lymphoma. Yeah. And then, Jason, what else do you need to check in a male who presents with a mediastinal mass? So uh, men with mediastinal masses, you also need to do make sure you do a good testicular and uh, scrotal exam uh, for those, uh, you know, those uh, germ cell tumors. Um, uh, great question. John, most common germ cell tumor? Uh, teratoma, and it's usually located in the anterior mediastinum. Right. So teratoma, uh, common uh, germ cell tumor in the anterior mediastinum. Again, anterior would be the most common site for those terrible T's. Uh, Megan, uh, something that comes up pretty frequently when we're talking about uh, mediastinal tumors is uh, the relationship between thymomas and uh, myasthenia gravis. Now, it can get a little bit confusing. Can you, can you break down the association there for us? Yeah, so I'm going to give a lot of percentages here, but 50% of thymomas are malignant. Um, so half are malignant. Half of them are symptomatic. Half of them, half of thymomas, have myasthenia gravis. 10% <clears throat> of the patients with myasthenia have a thymoma. And then 80% of myasthenia patients will improve with thymectomy. Yeah, so we're gonna, I'm going to repeat that uh, real quick because it's important and it confuses people and it shows up it shows up pretty often. So you're 50%. So half of thymomas are malignant, half are symptomatic, half have myasthenia gravis. Of patients with myasthenia gravis, 10% have a thymoma. And then patients with myasthenia, 80% uh, of them will improve with a thymectomy. Um, so uh, it can be a little bit confusing, so go over that a few times because uh, sometimes that, those things will show up. Uh, okay, still in the mediastinum. Um, so superior vena cava syndrome. Um, 
John, uh, what are some common causes of superior vena cava syndrome? Uh, so malignancy is the most common here. It's over half, about 60%. And it's usually related to a small cell lung cancer. Uh, and then that's the most common. Then lymphoma is obviously what you need to be thinking of after that. Uh, the non-malignant causes of SVC syndrome uh, are fibrosing mediastinitis, uh, substernal thyroid goiter, uh, sarcoidosis, um, and then uh, it can also be due secondary to indwelling intravascular devices such as a, uh, um, either a central line or a port. Yeah, so you could have you have thrombosis from a chronic indwelling line that results in, in severe favorite syndrome. But you should be thinking about malignancy um, if you have a patient that presents with this. And uh, again, the most common uh, being a small cell lung cancer uh, followed by lymphoma. Um, how do people with uh, making how do people with the uh, SVC syndrome typically uh, present? So these patients have an obstruction of the venous system, and so their symptoms include a dilation of the veins in their head and their neck. Um, they may also have uh, swelling of their face, swelling of their neck, or even arm swelling. Um, and then if it's very severe, they can get laryngeal and tracheobronchial compression. Um, the, the way that patients will come in describing it is that they have a fullness in their head when they bend over. Um, and then finally, if you have uh, SVC syndrome and um, it's due to a pancose tumor, then uh, it could be associated with Horner syndrome, which if we remember from step one days is ptosis, meiosis, and anhydrosis. Yep, that's your pancose tumor resulting in Horner syndrome. And, and as you said, uh, for some reason, that was a, a very big deal. I remember when I was a medical student studying for step one, so um, it should be ingrained in everybody's head by now. Uh, you, diagnosis is typically what you would think. You need to get some imaging, chest x-ray, CT with contrast, plus or minus uh, venography. Um, and then, uh, John, what's the treatment for SVC syndrome? So these patients, uh, usually positioning them in an upright position to reduce the amount of edema. Uh, steroids are a good option here, plus or minus anticoagulation or significant clot burden. Uh, and then probably the first time or the only case where emergent XRT is actually indicated, uh, where they, if the patient's super symptomatic and they, they can treat the underlying causes, such as yeah, so the treatment is going to vary depending on what's causing it. So if you have a small cell lung cancer, you know, this is the reason why radiation oncologists have pagers is, is for, for things like this. Um, uh, uh, okay, so moving on. Um, out of the mediastinum, let's move a little bit more peripherally into the lung. Um, so, uh, Megan, uh, what are, uh, we're talking about lung masses, uh, what are the different recommendations, or what are the recommendations for screening patients uh, for uh, for pulmonary tumors? So screening recommendations as of now are to perform a annual low-dose CT scan for three years in um, patients who are 55 to 80-year-olds 80, 80 um, who are current or former smokers with a greater than 30 pack year history or if they quit within the past 15 years, uh, because this puts them at a higher risk. Yeah, so um, so uh, patients over 55, 55 to 80, if they're currently smoking, um, uh, they have 30 pack year smoking history, um, or if they uh, were a smoker that's quit within the past 15 years, annual low dose CT for three years. Excellent. Um, uh, so, Talk to me about lung cancer, Megan. Is it, it's, it, is it still the number one cause of cancer-related death in the United States? Yes, it still is. 
uh, despite everybody quitting, I mean, uh, I don't know how anybody still smokes in this day and age, but we're still the number one cause of cancer-related death in the United States. Um, uh, and what is the uh, strongest, somebody with lung cancer, what is uh, something very important that you want to know that uh, will affect their prognosis? So you want to know their nodal involvement um, because this is going to, if they have a lot of nodal involvement, it's going to affect both the treatment and then also their overall prognosis. Yeah. So nodal involvement is the strongest prognostic indicator. Um, okay. So nodal involvement. How about metastases? Uh, what's the most common site for, of metastases with uh, a lung cancer? So the most common site is the brain, and this again affects uh, your diagnostic workup in a patient who presents knowing that the brain is the most common site of METs. Um, but it can also go to the supraclavicular nodes, a contralateral lung, bone, liver, and the adrenal gland. Perfect. Um, so yeah, we won't get, uh, it's unusual for them to get too in the weeds as far as lung cancer goes for the general surgery boards or for the outside. So uh, we're just gonna stick with some of the high yield facts for that. Um, and certainly it's a very complex uh, subject that uh, I would encourage everybody to uh, read a little bit more into for real life, but for the boards, you honestly don't need to know honestly that much about it. Uh, but what you do need to know and what every general surgeon should know is uh, how to work up a solitary pulmonary nodule. So, uh, John, what is a workup for a solitary pulmonary nodule? So, yeah, you must have to go through a, a few questions when you get a, a SPN. So um, I wouldn't worry too much about size uh, for these, especially for the general surgery boards. But uh, First thing is, is it a benign calcification or is it stable for two years? If that's true, then there's no further work that needed. The next question is, is surgical risk acceptable? If no, then I would consider a CT biopsy for diagnosis and then potentially XRT for palliation if it's necessary based on the biopsy results. If the SBN is growing over two years, uh, but there's acceptable surgical risk, um, you must consider the, uh, uh, the clinical probability of cancer. So if it's a low probability of cancer, you can consider serial CT at 3, 6, 12, and 24 months just to follow that um, nodule. If there's intermediate, then uh, consider doing a PET or a transthoracic or bronchoscopic biopsy of the nodule. And if there's a high probability of cancer, I would consider a VATS biopsy with frozen section and then a little back to the point. Excellent. So definitely want to review that. Uh, that will show up uh, at times for on oral boards. Um, uh, and will definitely show up uh, on written boards and the outside. So that's, that's something that's, that's it's a, you know, we're not all thoracic surgeons, but uh, that's one of those things that every general surgeon needs to know how to work up, and uh, they will test you for it. So you know, I just got done saying we're not going to get too in the weeds with lung cancer, but it is, it is we do need to have a uh, general understanding. Uh, so, Megan, what is the most common type of lung cancer? Most common type of lung cancer is non-small cell lung cancer, and this is uh, more than three quarters of the lung cancers. Okay, and uh, what about uh, location? How does that help you out in, uh, uh, in, in determining the likelihood of the different kinds of lung cancers? So this is another thing that we memorized for step one, um, that squamous and small cell uh, lung cancers are more central. They all have that um, S sound, and then uh, adenocarcinomas are usually peripheral. Exactly. 
Um, and there's, uh, speaking of things that we, we memorized for step one, that still kind of come back to haunt us every once in a while, and those are the parameoplastic syndromes associated with lung cancer. Um, what are the different associations with parameoplastic uh, syndromes and the different types of lung cancers? Megan. Uh, so squamous cell is pretty straightforward. There's just one. It's the PTH-related peptide um, is secreted, which can cause uh, hypercalcemia. And then for small cell, this is the one where you have um, the ACTH secretion, um, which is the most common perineoplastic syndrome. And then you can also get um, uh, antidiuretic hormone secretion. Yeah, so small cell lung cancer is more likely to, to, to uh, be associated with those perineoplastic syndromes, except for that one, like you said, except for the hypercalcemia and the parathyroid hormone-related peptide. Um, just remember that one is squamous cell. Uh, John, uh, what's the role of mediastinoscopy um, with uh, 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 lung cancer and uh, uh, pulmonary tumors? Yeah, so if you have a central located tumor or any suspicious adenopathy, usually on your uh, your workup, such as a PET scan or a uh, um, or a CT chest, uh, that's one of the main indications for it. If you have um, positive mediastinal nodes on that mediastinoscopy, that's considered an unresectable tumor, and surgery is not an option anymore. Sometimes they bring up uh, which nodes are not assessed during your mediastinoscopy. And these are your aortic pulmonary nodes. The only way to really uh, sample these nodes is for a perform a chamber limb procedure, uh, which is an anterior thoracotomy or a peristernal mediastinotomy to the left second rib cartilage. Great. Okay. Perfect. Um, we, it's, uh, we're not going to get too deep into the staging of lung cancers. Um, you do have to have it. I would encourage everybody to kind of look over that. Um, you do have to have a general idea of. of what constitutes your TN and M staging, um, but uh, we're, we're, it's, uh, we won't get too into the weeds that uh, potentially we'll, we'll, we'll put this out into our notes because I think it's one of those things that's easier to visualize than it is to kind of talk through. Uh, but let's go through, uh, Megan, let's go through some treatment options uh, for, uh, in general, treatment options for lung cancer. So those lower stage, uh, stage one, stage two, uh, what, uh, what's the treatment? So for low-stage cancers, we would uh, just resect, um, or if they're not a good surgical candidate because of their FEV1 or DLCO, then you would do definitive radiation. Okay, well, let's take it a little bit stepper. So locally advanced disease. So uh, stage three, um, uh, those early stage threes. So just we're dealing with locally advanced disease. Uh, what's the treatment for that? So for these, you would um, actually give them neoadjuvant chemo radiation, and then um, if they're amenable, you can resect after. Okay. Now let's go to those more uh, those 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 higher stage three. So the stage three Bs. Those are you know very large tumors, or they have uh, nodal involvement, either supraclavicular or cervical nodal involvement. Um, what's uh, what do those patients need? For those patients, you would give definitive chemo radiation. Yeah, so that's stage three uh, still, but it's that more advanced stage three. So uh, we're dealing with uh, tumors that are invading into the mediastinum. We're dealing with uh, the tumors that have spread to those uh, supraclavicular nodes. Those patients are uh, chemo uh, radiation. Um, and then stage four disease uh, is pretty straightforward. Uh, what's the treatment for that? So for those patients, um, if they're having, if they're very symptomatic, you can do a palliative resection or you give them radiation therapy. Okay. 
Um, and in general, again, a lot of variation. Uh, talk, talk to me a little bit about VATS versus open resection for lung cancer. Uh, so typically, if um, and I have I recently saw a score question on this as well is that um, if the tumor is more than five centimeters, then you can't do a VATS. Usually, you're going to have to do an open resection. Um, you, however, can do a VATS if it's a smaller tumor, less than five centimeters. If it's peripheral, if there's no regional lymphadenopathy or no local invasion. Um, and the reason for this is you, you want to get your hands in there and feel for lymphadenopathy if, uh, if that does exist so that you can resect everything. Yeah, I, I think that varies a lot. I, I, I honestly don't think that that will show up too much in it, but it does show up in score. So we should be somewhat familiar with it. Um, okay, uh, let's talk about uh, sometimes, and this does actually show up, asking you, and these, these questions can be very difficult, but let's talk about surveillance. So how do you, uh, how do you keep track of these patients um, after, the, so after uh, the treatment? So uh, stage uh, one and two, uh, what is uh, the, the follow-up plan for these patients? So for your stage one and two patients, uh, you do an HMP and CT chest every six months for three years. Uh, and if that clears, then you do an annual HMP with a non-contrasted non CT chest, um, yeah, usually, obviously. Uh, for stage three and four, you do an HMP with CT chest every three to six months for three years. Uh, an HMP, and that's that's good, HMP with CT chest every six months, and then that moves to annually. Yeah, a little bit in the weeds there, but uh, these I find these questions very irritating. But uh, for the just for the when you're prepping for your oral boards, um, uh, I think they should probably show up more on the oral boards than they do in the written boards. But when you're prepping for those, make sure the big cancer, so breast, colon, lung, you know, the the, the, the melanoma, um, you know, the, the big ones. Make sure that you have a general idea of what the society guidelines are for follow up because. Uh, if you made it to that point, you probably passed the scenario, honestly, but uh, those do show up, so you do need to know those. Uh, okay, let's move out of lung cancer. Let's move uh, into something a little bit more fun. Um, if you ask me, that's that's trauma. So, John, uh, so uh, what classically for the abscite, what volume of blood from a chest tube in a uh, trauma uh, patient uh, indicates need for going to the operating room? Yeah, so two uh, two big things every surgery resident should know, 1,500 milliliters of fluid initially when you place that chest tube, or two to 300 uh, milliliters an hour for two to four hours after you place the chest tube. Yeah, so we can argue a little bit about the data supporting that, but uh, if you're taking a test, those are the numbers you need to know. 1,500 mLs initially, or two to 300 hour, an hour out for two to four hours. Um, is it after a chest tube is an indication for uh, going to the OR and uh, finding what's bleeding. Um, how about resuscitative thoracotomy or your ER thoracotomy? I prefer resuscitative thoracotomy because it doesn't have to happen in the emergency room. But um, what are indications for resuscitative thoracotomy? Uh, so any penetrating injury within less than 15 minutes of CPR, um, which is usually less than 15, 15 minutes of CPR presentation to the emergency room. Um, any penetrating, penetrating extrathoracic injury with a sanguation in less than five minutes of CPR. Uh, and then blunt trauma is always a little more debatable, but losing signs and routes are witnessed in the ED. So they show up on the ramp, customers show up on the ramp, they lost pulses on the ramp uh, with less than 10 minutes of CPR. Uh, okay. Uh, can you walk me through quickly a resuscitative thoracotomy? 
Yeah, so uh, recessive thoracotomy uh, is this, this intercision uh, in the inframammary line and the fourth intercostal space. Uh, you get down into the chest, um, you open the pair, the basic steps open the pericardium above the phrenic nerve into the phrenic nerve in a longitudinal direction. Uh, you want to clamp the aorta at that time, too. A few little steps that you can do um, during this time to kind of help your process and make an, an OG tube that's placed to help identify the esophagus. You don't clamp the esophagus during the aorta clamp. Uh, one of the bigger steps there is make sure you open up the, the pleural on either side of the aorta. Make sure you get a good clamp across that. Um, if you had the option for a double lumen intubation at that time too to deflate the lung on that side of injury, you can do that. But most of the time in these cases, you're not having that option. Um, and uh, the last thing you do, obviously, if the patient's dying, uh, is you want to do cardiac massage. Yeah, great. So everybody should be able to, to succinctly describe a resuscitative thoracotomy. Um, it's one of those procedures you may be asked to, to, to describe. Um, and, and also, know how, it might be something you have to do um, and know how to deal with different injuries you may find. Uh, okay, so that uh, is a fast and furious uh, kind of overview of thoracic for the abscite. Uh, uh, again, try not to get too much in the weeds, but just hit those, uh, those wave tops, those high yield points that you may need to know. And as always, we'll round up with our quick hits. Um, so, Megan, uh, uh, one of my favorite scenarios, so massive bleeding in a patient uh, who uh, had uh, recently had a tracheostomy placed. Uh, what do you think it is? Uh, what are your temporizing measures? And uh, uh, how do you ultimately manage these patients? So this patient probably has a tracheo-innominate fistula um, to temporize. <clears throat> I would want to inflate the cuff, um, and then I can also place my finger into the opening of the trachea and put anterior pressure um, and, and en route to the OR. Um, and at that point, you would want to do a median sternotomy um, to ligate and resect the um, fistula and the innominate artery. What happens if you, because uh, they will give you this option. Let's, uh, so uh, perfect management. So you, you can over, you can inflate the cuff, you can put your finger in, you want to press up that innominate against the uh, sternum. So apply pressure that way. Uh, go to the OR that way, prep your hand in the field, median sternotomy, ligation, resection of the innominate artery. But they will always give you the option of, of reconstructing. Uh, what will happen if you reconstruct that uh, innominate artery? You'll get a recurrent fistula. Or it'll blow out. So you're, you'll be post-op day two or three, it'll become infected and uh, and it'll blow out and your patient will fail in a spectacular manner. Uh, so don't say that on your boards. Um, how do you how would you prevent these uh, fistula in the first place? So when you do your tracheostomy, you should always place it between the second and third tracheal ring. Great. Uh, John, pericardial cyst. Uh, what do you do? Uh, you don't have to do anything. Um, or you normally find these at the right costal bronchial angle. Yeah, which ones do you resect? You know, symptomatic ones? Yes, yeah, symptomatic ones. Uh, or if there's you know, any concern for, for uh, a malignancy there. But uh, yeah, in general, uh, they're benign um, and you don't have to resect the asymptomatic ones. Um, okay, so it's pericardial cyst. And Megan, what, what about uh, bronchiogenic cyst? Uh, so bronchiogenic cysts actually do need to be resected, and these are the ones that you find usually posterior to the carina. Great. John, most common uh, uh, tumor, either benign or malignant in adults? So for benign, uh, hematoma is the uh, most common benign tumor in adults. 
Um, so this is the classic popcorn lesion. That's something I've seen pop up a few times, plus or minus calcifications. Uh, there's no treatment for this, and you just repeat the CT in six months to confirm the diagnosis. For malignant um, tumor in adults uh, is the squamous cell carcinoma. Yeah, so hematoma, uh, that's, that's the buzzword there, that popcorn lesion, uh, no treatments. Uh, repeat CT in six months, um, and uh, squamous cell is uh, currently the most common uh, 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 type of uh, uh, lung tumor. Um, what, what about in uh, in children? So in children, uh, benign, the most common is a hemangioma, and then malignant, it's a carcinoid tumor. Great. Uh, benign hemangioma, malignant carcinoid in children. Uh, uh, how about, uh, John, what type of lung cancer mimics pneumonia? Yeah, that's a good question, too. Uh, is the bronchioalveolar cancer, because it grows along the alveolar walls, and it's using multifocal on a chest x-ray, and CTMA actually look like an pneumonia. Excellent. So that's it. That's all we have for you today. So that is the uh, thoracic, um, uh, behind the app site, thoracic uh, edition. Um, good luck. I hope you guys are uh, enjoying these, and uh, happy studying.